The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you all. Well, good morning to you. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church at Music Row. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm, my name is Stacy Croft, and um, unfortunately, I'm not a kid. I act like one, but I'm not a child. But um, it has been sweet, and this is one of those things that we have started um, some time ago, and um, and are going to carry it forward. Where we have our uh, children and students lead our service for us, and uh, it's a great reminder, not only that. Um, our service isn't just tailored for one specific person. But as the Lord Jesus even rebuked his disciples at one point to say, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless we do so as children. And um, what a great reminder of what we need to learn and of our dependence on him. Um, I don't know if you've been in Nashville long. Uh, Maybe you have. Maybe you're familiar with a lot of uh, the Nashville kind of festivals, things that go on. I'm sure you're used to like CMA and all the country music kind of things. There are some other things that go on in the city. You can always look them up if you want to. One of them that is in Middle Tennessee is called the Gaelic Festival. It's the Highland Games Celtic Festival that goes on. It moves around from park to park. I don't know if you're one of those people that loves to wear a kilt and run out onto a field, but this is your kind of thing. Go for it. Um, so a few years ago, <clears throat> it was happening to meet at Percy Warner Park, and I want to read an article from that, from that actual event. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Percy Warner Park, most everybody here may have known that where that is. The steps, you know, those beautiful grand steps that go up. On the back side of that, that's where the festival was. The article is tab- uh, <laughs> labeled, We Missed You, spelled E-W-E. Enjoy the puns, you're going to hear a lot. Sheep missing for weeks in Percy Warner Park found. Celebrated by Bellevue residents. Escaped the flock during the sheepdog demonstration on September 9th. Phil Lakin, who, was, who often performs such demonstrations with the trained sheep and sheepdogs, was involved in the annual Middle Tennessee Highlight Games and Celtic Festival at Percy Warner that weekend. I am so happy for all the residents of Bellevue. They honestly put their heart and souls into the three-week search ordeal. 
Hats off to Bellevue, Lakin said Thursday. More than I can put into words, so grateful for the outcome. An affectionate following of nearby Bellevue residents nicknamed the f- female sheep Bellu. Yes. And organized spotters and searches over the past months in the hopes of keeping out for the serious trouble. Bellu was found around 1 p.m. Thursday. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. Leisurely walking down one of the closed roads in Percy Warner Park. So can you imagine if you're on your daily walk at Percy Warner and there's just a sheep just coming down the middle of the road? That's what happened. They're like, here comes a sheep. Well, you know, aside from the puns and the goofy, you know, literature, uh, the thing that really does stand out in this is, one, the overwhelming effort of people to, to search for the sheep. I actually heard about this some time ago and thought the thing was eaten. Like, I legit did not know it, it survived. I thought, man, that's a perfect meal for all the bobcats and things that live in Percy Warner Park. Realize it, it they found this thing. And the second thing that's really profound in this is the celebration, the, the overwhelming outcome of this for the sheep. Now, look, we've been looking at topical study the last couple weeks, and we're kind of closing the end. We have this week and next week. We're looking at uh, a series we're calling He Gets Us. Now, we're taking it from a commercial series that's been out called He Gets Us that has been on TV. But we're kind of taking it from our vantage point where we are speaking to who is Jesus really? And from time to time, as we do, we typically look at a book of the Bible. Now we've been looking at topical pictures of what Jesus is in particular. And Jesus, as he would speak from time to time, would use things that are called parables. They were illustrations that drew out larger points of theology. And in this one in particular, he's drawing from a chapter called chapter 15 of Luke. Now, this Chapter may not be as familiar, but the most famous parable that anyone would know, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and and I hope there are several of you here that are like, I don't even know what Luke is. It's one of the Gospels. And Luke chapter 15 holds what we know as the prodigal son. This chapter as a whole is considered the chapter on those who are lost. And it begins with these two parables, small ones building up to right after this, which would be the, the famous one of the prodigal son. But what's interesting about these parables is what Jesus is doing is not necessarily highlighting so much the the ones who are lost, but God's character about how he searches, who he's seeking out. In fact, this was actually a defense, this whole chapter in these parables and illustrations was Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God is about, was to defend with this whole thing of set up in in verses 1 and 2, that they were grumbling, the scribes and Pharisees, as we even talked about last week. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors and sinners keep flocking to Jesus. And they were dumbfounded by it. So Jesus, in, in, in such a kind way and also in a defense of his ministry, says, let me tell you some parables, some illustrations of God's kingdom that will drive home the point of what is God about? And who does he pursue? And that the effort and the value and the celebration that goes along with whom God seeks out 
is what is to be highlighted here. So we're going to look at this in a simple way. I love the fact that the parables do this for us. We're going to look at the parable in two ways. What does it really mean to be lost? And what does it really mean to be found? What does it really mean to be lost? And what does it really mean to be found? Because I think as we open up this chapter, so to speak, we need to understand, even if you're here and you'd say, I I would consider myself a Christian, and maybe you're here and you'd say, I don't know if I am or not. This parable, these collections of parables, will highlight for you, wherever you are, about what does it mean to know that you're lost, and what does it mean to know that you're found. The parable begins this way. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. You can imagine them grumbling, them just, even as I mentioned Last week, looking through the windows of the dining rooms that are uh, houses of where Jesus would eat, and they would see him eating with these people. And the people that he was eating with were of low social status, not even of that, they were of, of, of irreputable status. And they were grumbling and saying, Why is he eating? This man receives sinners and eats with them, <laughs> he shares his table with them. And so he brings him a parable. He says, let me tell you. So he told him this parable. And when a parable is given, and a little caveat here, a parable isn't an allegory. So unlike an old, you know, maybe some of you read this when you're growing up, George Orwell's Animal Farm, that, those kind of books, or even Pilgrim's Progress, the famous Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Those are allegories where everything kind of matches a thing. So everything represents something. A parable is not an allegory. So when you read this, it'd be tempting to say, this means this, this means that. A parable was an illustration of one major theological point. And things did have some representation, but that wasn't what you were supposed to understand. The point was to be driven home. And the parable here of driving home is, is what does God seek? You know, at first you could read this and everything's lost. Like this is a chapter on what is lost. There's a sheep, there's a coin, and there's a prodigal son. But really the emphasis is not on in the parable and the description, the major unpacking, isn't on the thing that's necessarily lost. It's actually on the one seeking it. It's on the owners. It's on the shepherd. It's on the woman. And that's where it begins that each of these that we're supposed to see, what does it really mean to be lost? It means that everything has an owner. Everyone has an owner. That there is an owner in the parable. There is one that is here. And it's a rhetorical question even that he asks the Pharisees. Notice he's asking this of the Pharisees. He says, what man of you? And then he says, what or what woman in other words, to say, who would, if they lose a sheep or a coin, wouldn't go after it? He kind of puts it in their court to say, hey, who wouldn't do these kind of things? But what's interesting is how Jesus kind of brings this up to them through a shepherd and through a woman. Two illustrations that wouldn't be illustra- illustrative of things that they would want to be compared to in that time. But it begins with the ones, that, who's seeking it out? That the shepherd and the woman, both of low status in that time, that that the Pharisees and scribes would probably have sat back and say, okay, we want to associate ourselves with the one being seeking out what is lost, but, uh," and so Jesus kind of puts them in a conundrum. 
And he begins not with the thing necessarily in highlighting loss, but the one who's what shepherd or woman highlighting the one seeking it out. You know, as we talk about what a testimony is, I don't know if you've ever heard that language before, especially if you're here and maybe Christianity is something you're, you're picking back up at a time or coming back into a church. Maybe the word testimony evokes some sort of like major religious kind of idea. But what a testimony really was and is, is someone's story. It's essentially the story of what God has done by rescuing. And I think often in uh, religious circles, and I remember this growing up for me, hearing testimony of people and what was, what's highlighted in the testimony. Is the testimony about the big story? I lived this life and lived this way. I remember hearing someone when I came uh, to faith in Jesus and, and, and trusted him as a young as sixth grader, hearing the testimony of someone, and they had an elaborate, well-thought-out story. And yet, I, what I remember most from what them highlighting wasn't that the emphasis of their testimony and their story was about them. It wasn't about what they walked or how bad they lived here or how, how great they did here or what decision they made here. It was, who was the one that pursued them and went and found them? That's the emphasis of the parable. The emphasis is on who's going to find them and recognizing that what is lost meant that there is an owner that cares about what is lost. That there's one who seeks to find these things. And it means, in a sense, that the things that are lost, and, and even looking at this, is that, and, and you see this in the prodigal son. So it's kind of interesting on this side of the parable, you see these things lost, they're inanimate objects. In the prodigal son, you see it on the other side of the humanity of it, and trying to live out ownership with anything else. See, here's, here's the apologetic, the defense of it, is that God is the owner. God is the one who owns us, and all of us seek to be owned. We live out something. Even if we would say, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't know if I want that, we have an owner in our lives. We give ownership to someone or something. Something gives us that and drives that value home. Something that we say, oh gosh, it holds us, it keeps us, it gives me value. It says I'm, not, I'm found in the midst of that. But what this parable is saying is there is one that has found us. In fact, it's interesting, the Hebrew for the discussion about the lost coin is that it rolled away. That it, it went away. In other words, the sheep and the coin rolled away from their purpose and their owner. Seeking to find some sort of life apart from. And that's the first part of this is it's we can't live apart from our true owner. There's a, a, a theologian, a great theologian, um, John Calvin, who said our hearts are idol factories. Maybe you've heard that before. What he meant by that is our hearts are constantly producing things that we could have on us. Essentially, things that we could give, us, give ourselves value, shape us. And what this is saying is the, the one who seeks us is trying to bring us back to say, <laughs> there's nothing else that can give you such value and love 
It's not just the the owner here, but it's also the awareness of being lost. Listen to this. He told him this parable. And then in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Notice that. In both of these, there's an element of do they know really how lost they are? See, what it really means to be lost is to not know how lost you are. It's interesting because notice he's not just talking to the tax collectors and sinners. See, the tax collectors and sinners are flocking to Jesus because they're saying, we, we know, we've been told, and we see in a reflection of the things that we keep turning to and struggling with, and yet we don't want to be this way. But you know who Jesus is telling the parable to? It's the people who don't know how lost they are. It's the people who say, they're lost, not me. Those people, they, if they just got their lives straight, then they could be a part of what we're a part of. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah drawn from this, and Jesus actually quotes this later. It says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's the religious leaders. See, we typically think of being lost and we use that language a lot as, oh, these bad things in our lives or this person is spun out into out of control and that that does connect to a lot of ways that we really have a heart and relational um, compassion towards people who may be down a very destructive path. But lost also really means you think you're good and don't need it at all. That's what he's saying, that you may say the right things and do the right things, but your heart is insanely far from the Lord himself, far from the owner, far from the one who knows you. Uh, I ran track in high school, and one of my, uh, my coach in high school who uh, would later become the cross-country um, coach, he was an amazing man, Coach Jerry Sutterfield, uh, had such a Im- profound impact in my life, not just as an athlete, but really as a student. Uh, he would do things like he would, um, when we would finish at the track and I would want to just stay and run or throw or do whatever I was doing, he would turn his headlights on and he'd say, do a couple more. It's great. And um, I would help him carry the stuff back. He was gonna, he's an incredible, uh, not only man of character, but he was an incredible father figure for me for a long time. And as he shifted from track to cross country and he began to win all these state championships in Texas and these things, um, I remember there was a specific event that I heard about that they were at a cross country meet. And I can't remember if it was like the regionals or state qualifier or something like that. But his group again was just top of the heap amazing, ready to go. Have you ever been to a cross-country meet or ran one yourself? Uh, I did not. <laughs> I, was, uh, I would rather run the short things, all left turns, finish first on that little, like, rubber track, okay? But, you know, if you do a cross-country meet, you usually go to, like, a, you know, like a golf course or large parks, like Percy Warner, things like that, and they have on the ground these markers where they've spray-painted where you run, typically, So, you know, this certain color goes here, this certain color goes here. Well, the meet finishes, 
uh, his group wins again. And come to find out at the end of the meet that there are a number of faded painted lines and the entire team, his entire team, had gone down the wrong path. And guess who had to be the one who was on the, uh, the standards for that meet? It was Coach Sutterfield. He had to disqualify his entire team from not only moving forward to state or winning any sort of championship, but he had to incur all the anger. I remember talking to him about it, him telling me, this is long after I'd been gone, that because they were long, he had to admit, he had to say, they, they were wrong. And as much as it may have been something there, they ran the wrong race. They went the wrong way. They have to admit, have to, I mean, honestly, have to know that being lost means you have to see that you're lost. No matter how high in ranking you come, you need to know. But you know what's incredible about this parable is that it doesn't end with that. It, again, highlights not only those who don't think they're lost, but it highlights the value of what is to be found. So again, he told this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls all her friends together, neighbors saying, rejoice with me. The focus here is on the incredible work and the value of the sheep and the coin to the owner. That what is lost has value. It would be very easy to read this parable, and you can kind of mine it out just a little bit. That it doesn't mean that, that, that and again, this is not allegorical. It doesn't mean that God needs us. God is not in a, in a position of need as we are, and yet he seeks. He also could have said, I got 99. I'm good. I got nine coins left. I'm all right. As I read further about the coin loss specifically and the sheep for the shepherd, it's, it's a lot more than what we might think of a sweet story of just someone losing a coin or losing a sheep. It actually goes further than that, that to leave and find one sheep meant you had to not only leave all the sheep there for someone else and possibly, hopefully, you had some other shepherds who could help you, but to go out and, and risk all that to go into the wilderness and find a sheep that, as we even read in modern times, was lost for three weeks. Can you imagine in a wilderness that looks nothing like this, that not just a Percy Warner type area, but there are all sorts of creatures around, not just wanting to eat the sheep, but the shepherd themselves. And the coin wasn't just a coin like loose cash, like a woman had a bag of coins. The coin was actually in a ring of necklace that would probably be of 10 strands, that would sometimes be a social necklace or maybe even show marital value. And to lose that coin would not just be, you know, a mess of what her jewelry was, but would actually show a mess of her status or even of her marital relationship. 
So the value in what was lost was profound. And I think Jesus wants us to see this. God doesn't say, "Uh, I got 99. The lost have incredible value. When my children, and they may have even have it done here, nearly most mornings trying to go to school or those kind of things, if they lose something they're focused on, it could be a shoe, it could be a wristband, it could be something that has nothing to do with us getting to school. Let's go, let's get in the car. I'm sure they get so tired of me saying this. We gotta get in the car. It's 7.35, we got, we're gonna be late. No, 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 no. But if they get focused on that thing, it's not a book, it's not something for school, it's just a little thing that they may wanna wear or they cannot find, maybe a specific shirt they had their mind set on, they will not leave unless they have it. It's pretty amazing, actually, because it offsets the entire house. And in a beautiful way, the treasure of what God wants us to see is that those who are lost are not like, eh, I don't know where your heart may be with those in your life that may not know the Lord, but God values those who are lost, who would be considered outside of the circle of God's kingdom. He seeks those to come in. He values those who don't think they deserve to come in and yet wants them to and brings the good news to them because this parable is trying to show us we are to love what God loves. Do we love as God loves? Because that's what it means to be found. See, what it means to be lost, we've seen, but what does it really mean to be found? It means there's amazing grace. And let's just throw out the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That amazing grace. What does it really mean to be found? It means that the grace is amazing. Notice, and I almost want to camp here for a while, but verse two says this, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. I, just, I think it's awesome that Luke was like, and eats with them. He didn't just receive the sinners, he eats with them. He has relationship with them. He sits, he knows them. He welcomes them and sits around their table. Receives sinners. Notice the Pharisees and scribes grumble about that. What do we do with that? Pray, I just want to stop and say, praise God that he receives sinners. That is what this, that we're doing this morning is about. The simple gospel truth of the good news is that God receives sinners. And guess what? He eats with them. That is amazing in and of itself. I've heard this story. It's almost like a seminary legend of profound professors being asked, "What's what's the question you want to ask God when you get to heaven? What was you, and wanting to hear some incredible theological question that they think God's gonna answer. And most of the time, if not, the answer back is, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. How in the world 
Does God love us so? I don't know if this actually happened in uh, reality. I know it was in the movie, and I know that this is a part of Johnny Cash's story and why he always wears black and his connection, if you know the great singer Johnny Cash. And there's an element where in, I know the story of Johnny Cash where several people were so bothered by the fact that he would play in prisons, some of which were religious followers of his. And when confronted about that, his line, at least in the theatrical version, is, well, they ain't Christians then. Where does the good news go? Do we find ourselves grumbling? Or do our hearts begin to melt because the love of being found, to know that you're really found, to know that you're really received, to know that you're found in ways that you don't want to be found. To believe that you're so far lost that you couldn't be found. Guess what? You can be found. To think of the parts of your life where you look at them and you say, this is so shameful. There's no one, not even my therapist, not even my closest family members or friends know this part about me. You know what? God wants to find that. And he wants to know that you're found. What it means to be found is that grace so overwhelms you in any part that you think you're lost, that lost becomes a distant memory. And that you no longer live out of being lost. You live out of being found. Grace is the profound kindness that, that shows that God is, is over you. This is why the Bible constantly talks about being found isn't something that you've earned. Being found isn't something that you can figure out. Being found doesn't mean you've answered all the questions and you don't have doubts. Being found means he's come to get you. As C.S. Lewis said, he is the hound of heaven and he pursues you and he pursues me. And if you sit in that and soak in that and you know, first off, how lost you are and then you say how found I am by the one, not just someone on this earth, but by the one who's made this earth, who wants to know me? Hey, guess what? Remember, and even if you're here and you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, you remember that when sin enters the picture and Adam and Eve do something, remember what they do? They hide from God. They hid from him. And God said, where are you? As if God didn't really know where they are, but where are you? Why is he asking them that? Because Not because he couldn't find them, but because he wanted them to be found. And he's been asking us that ever since. He is longing, and guess what? He sends his own son to show how found we are. It, the difference, the marquee difference of what it means to be a Christian means that God finds us on his own terms. We're the ones that said, mm, I don't know. As Isaiah 53 said it beautifully, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All we like sheep have gone away. We've turned our own way. 
And yet God pursues us with amazing grace to call us to repent. And what does repent mean? And that, if you notice, that's kind of part of it in each of these. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Same again with the coin. Just so I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word repents means to turn. And it doesn't mean necessarily, and as we were saying to the Pharisees, that you turn from bad things to good things. Get your life in order. But that you turn to the one who has found you. You turn from both bad things and the good things as the Pharisees would need to know their own self-righteousness because they don't need to repent. What do we need to turn from is what they would say. But to turn to Jesus, to turn to him. And you know what's my favorite part of these parables that is over and over? And we sat around and talked about these parables as a staff this last week. And the thing that we brought up the most is how many times the word joy or rejoice is in these parables. You know what being found means? It doesn't just end at you being found and saying, amazing grace. It actually ends with rejoicing. See, if you're here this morning and if you've never come to Jesus, if you've never really said, I want to follow him, I want to encourage you to turn to him, to engage Brush up against about how lost you may know you are and may even not know that you are and turn to him. And if you're here and you'd say, I've been a follower of Jesus as long as I can remember, what is this for me? Rejoice. Rejoice. You don't live out of a loss. You live out of being found. So it's this profound joy. Listen to this. What does he say when he found it? In verse six, when he found, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. It's not only a rejoicing, it's a restoration to the community. Do you notice that? The 99 are over here, the one's over here, and guess what? The one comes back to join and be rejoiced over. That there's joy in the salvation. There's joy in being found, not disdain, but a rejoicing of that. Same with the coin, until she finds it and has found it, and she calls all her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, I've found the coin that was lost. If we would say that we're followers of Jesus, that are, know that we're found by grace, the characteristic that should mark us deeply from these parables is a joy. It doesn't mean there's not hard times. Joy doesn't mean we don't have hard days or feel distant sometimes from God, but there's a rejoicing of saying, what do we go back to? Do we go back to trying to feel good or being in a church or doing good religious things? Or do we go back to the fact that being found is amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? That is what it means to be found. The joy of being found drives us to love the Lord and seek others who are in that place. That's what this table is saying. You know, the rest of Isaiah 53 says this. It begins what I just read, saying that all we, everyone to his own way, and the Lord, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Listen to this. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. The difference in what it means to be found in following Jesus, it means that the owner himself became a sheep to save the lost sheep so that we might be found and so that he might take the punishment of being eternally lost on him. That's what this table is. This table shows that if you taste of it, that you've actually been found. You can actually come to this table with as many struggles, with as many moments in your life, you're like, I just feel lost here, and taste and be reminded that it's not a feeling you live on. It's not a moment that you can, you can or a circumstance that you can arrive at. But the basis of you being found is strictly in the body and blood of the one who became a sheep and was silent before the shearers and was sacrificed so that we who had gone astray might never be lost again. That's the simple truth. That's the good news. That's the description from Isaiah, that this table is amazing grace. And you know what we should do as we leave this table? Rejoicing. You can't leave a table like this where someone has, it's been so costly to them and you've received amazing grace without your heart leaping. This is why so many people in the gospels who meet Jesus, they say they love much because they've been forgiven much. People that ate at those tables, people who encountered Jesus that were sinners, they gave back what was a part of what they stole or they, they repaired relationships that were broken because so deeply was the love that found them that they could do nothing but live out of the joy of the amazing grace that saved them. Praise be to God. Let's stand together.